fantastic. And so my aim this morning is to just let you down gently <laughs> as, as we uh, look at the scriptures together this morning. And as I get older, some of you will laugh at that, but as I get older, uh, I, I've come to realize that, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, uh, that, that pyramid-looking thing, and at the bottom there's like the base things that every human being needs for survival. Well, one of those things at the, at the bottom, uh, the, at the base, the foundation of the pyramid is water. To which everyone says, yeah, duh. Uh, but I, I've come to realize as I'm getting older that the things that are at the bottom of this foundational pyramid called the hierarchy of needs are not optional. I've just approached them as, as quite optional. Uh, and, and in particular, I've come to realize that I am chronically dehydrated. Like I drink, my, my, my water to coffee ratio is completely off. And I, you know, I've tricked myself into believing over time, like, oh, well, you know, there's water and coffee, right? So I'm getting it somehow. Uh, but as I've I feel the effects and the impact on my, on my body. And then TikTok got me as I was thinking of how I could stay more dehydrated, or stay more hydrated. <laughs> uh, somebody sent me this, this goofy TikTok that included this Stanley water bottle. And many of you know Stanley from, you know, the good old days when it was the, the nice uh, coffee mug with the, the, the twist-off top that you, was actually a cup. You could pour it into the cup. Super cool. I mean, what a time to be alive. <laughs> and, but they've, they've come back around, you know, like with fashion, everything old is new again. And, and they have developed this incredible piece of technology, this water bottle that is 40 ounces of water, uh, but look, see, the base here is, is small enough to fit into your cup holder in your car, and it has a handle, so you can, you know, be on the go, because all of us, I mean, that's the thing about being hydrated. We're always moving and going and active, but look at this. I can walk and talk, and look at that. I'm already more hydrated as, as we go, and it has a straw, so maybe you don't keep up with the trends of of water bottle evolution like I do, but, you know, like a Nalgene, any Nalgene fans in the house this morning? Yeah, 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 so Nalgenes are great. They fit in your hand well, but you have to screw off the top every time. Sometimes if you get a little, a little excited, you're getting wet. And then they developed into, uh, you know, the Camelback water bottles with the, you know, with the straw and you sip on it. And then that moved to the, um, the clean canteen any fans of the clean canteen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you'll, you'll know, <laughs> most people are probably not fans of clean canteen. And even if you don't know clean canteen, you know what they sound like. Because it sounds like an angry dolphin whenever somebody takes a drink of water. Because of, anyways. Uh, and then that developed into hydro flask. Any hydro flask homies in the house? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And, but I, I think we've arrived uh, at the, the pinnacle here in the, in the Stanley water bottle. Uh, and I, I've come to realize that, you know, in order to be, like, minimally hydrated, you need to drink at least three of these a day. That's crazy, especially for somebody like me who considered being hydrated, like taking a sip of water when I, had th when I was feeling thirsty. But this is like a legitimate commitment. And if I don't have two of these before lunchtime, it, it's not going to happen. And then I found out that if, if I try and catch up after lunchtime, I step into experience that is, is, is a preview of future attractions for me. Some of you know well. I'm up a bunch in the middle of the night going to the bathroom, and it's just, you know, it's, it's challenging. It's hard to stay hydrated. But implicitly, we know that we need water, need to be hydrated. We, we're, we're better off when we are. And I, I realized that my 16-month-old daughter, Berkeley, one of her first words, if you can call it a word, was Wawa. She, she would see me drink this, and she, she knew Wawa. And she wanted to drink it. And, you know, that may just be the cutest thing ever. Uh, but I, when she was just learning how to, how to drink out of a straw, she would ask for Wawa, and I would give it to her, and she would take a sip and get too much and spill it all over herself. And, and then she would say what is actually the cutest thing ever. She would say, uh-oh. <laughs> but like, a, it, it's, it's, it's a little bit British, which is nice. So hopefully that bodes well for a future career in theater or something like that. But I think the thing I've come to realize about being hydrated is you need more than you think. When it comes to water, when it comes to being hydrated, you need more than you think you need. And what, I, what I've observed in, in my own experience and what I'm curious about in, in ours is when it comes to the Christian faith, in, in the scriptures, the story of the scriptures, water is this immediately graspable image and symbol of life, of flourishing of vitality, of refreshment, of revival, of renewal. And so much of Christianity, at least in our time, is kind of like the experience of watching somebody else drink water and expecting that to quench our own thirst. It's like I watch and observe somebody else getting hydrated thinking that somehow that that will, through osmosis or something, carry over to me. And the invitation, the question, the, the thing I'm wondering about is what would it look like? What would it be like? What would it feel like to find yourself fully spiritually hydrated? Like to have your thirst for life, for meaning, for relationships quenched by something powerful and present and available and delightful and refreshing, what would that be like? What would it feel like to find ourselves fully hydrated? 
by the Spirit of God. There's a, as I was thinking about this, there's a story in the Scriptures that I think Jesus led me to that re- was refreshing for me to read and, and remember and reflect on, and I hope the same is true for all of us this morning. It's a, it's a deep cut from a prophet named Ezekiel. And most of Ezekiel, if, you, if you've ever done a Bible through the year plan, you get to Ezekiel, it's wild. Uh, I've had experiences reading through parts of Ezekiel wishing that it had, you know how on, on Netflix or, or any streaming show, it has that like skip intro button and you just like get right to the, to the action? There are parts of the scriptures that I wish had that skip button. But then when we get to chapter 47, towards the very end, Ezekiel, who has had lots of visions, dreams, encounters in prayer with with images and symbols and metaphors and realities that are are hard to describe and confusing to read. Uh, But then in chapter 47, he has another one that is crystal clear. And in verses 1 through 12, we we see Ezekiel have this vision, which we'll read in in just a moment. And what is important to know as, as we jump in is that Ezekiel is praying and and writing to the people of God at a time in their history, in the Old Testament, this is the time before Jesus, when things are starting to decline. Ezekiel is effectively a pastor's son, and his desire, his intention the family trade that he's caught up in is to serve, ultimately, when he comes of age, in the temple, just like his father and likely his father's father and his father's father and his father's father before him. And the year before Ezekiel becomes a priest in the temple, he's probably got the date circled on his calendar. He knows that this time is coming. The empire of Babylon comes... Jerusalem, and carts its leading figures out into exile in Babylon. And so Ezekiel opens with him sitting by a canal in Babylon. I think he's probably praying. It might even be the very day that Ezekiel was to be ordained properly and formally as a priest. And then he has this vision in Babylon of God on sort of a mobile sanctuary coming into Babylon. And then this vision of God who is is somewhere where God was not expected or even supposed to be. In in the imagination of of the Hebrew people at the time, God was always and only ever in the temple in Jerusalem. But now Ezekiel is encountering him in exile in Babylon. And this vision 
reveals to Ezekiel that there are two things that are happening, two things that God is doing in this moment of of confusion and decline and desperation. One is that God is about the work of, of deconstruction. God is bringing judgment upon the people in the land. That's what exile means. And I think if you have grown up in the church or if you are somebody who's had negative experiences within the church, this deconstruction is is a popular phrase right now within the context of Christian culture. And what people generally mean by deconstruction is to kind of take what was given to you as truth this thing that you sort of built up around yourself and your life, and to begin, in light of your own experiences, in light of the way that the church has failed and what's happening in the world, to, to start to deconstruct, to bring those things down to the studs and figure out what stands the test of time and experience. And it's a, I, I bring this up to say uh, that more often than not, God is the initiator of that experience of deconstruction. And so that those, those moments, those experiences that you have that you feel like things are falling apart, it might just be that God is inviting you into a deeper experience and a, and a, and a higher quality of relationship with him where things that were sort of illusions are being exposed as such. However, where Ezekiel continues, which I think is a word for those of us who might be in this phase or experience of deconstructing, is deconstruction, we see it all throughout the Bible, but deconstruction is always, always done in community and followed by a period of reconstruction. The purpose of building down is to build something stronger and more lasting in its place, where we exist in in a community of people where when we are willing to take something out, we have people around us who say, maybe not that. Let's think about that. Let's let's hold on to that. Let's pray about it. Digression over. Deconstruction, reconstruction. And then we pick up in chapter 47. And chapters 40 through 48... uh, these are, these are one of those skip intro button pages because in this vision, Ezekiel is walking around with this figure who has a measuring tape and they're just walking around. Imagine, imagine a sermon where I have a measuring tape or somebody has a measuring tape and they're just wandering around the sanctuary measuring the walls and saying three feet by four feet. Oh, these pews, 12 feet by 3 feet. And you're like, what does this have to do with anything? And there's a whole other sermon for that. But what it leads to ultimately is this moment. Ezekiel 47. The vision continues. 
the man brought me back to the entrance of the temple. And I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east, and the water was flowing from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits, and then he led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, and by now it was a river that I could not cross, because the water had risen and it was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, son of man, do you see this? He then led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because the water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore. From En Gedi to En Egalim, there will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear, because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food, and their leaves for healing. In Ezekiel's vision, begins with this sort of percolation. Ezekiel is in the temple. In, in, in this vision, he's in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, a place where only priests could go. Only one person, one time a year, was allowed into this sacred space on the Day of Atonement. And on a random Tuesday in Babylon, Isaiah is in there. And what he sees coming from the altar, the most holy space, the space where the presence of God dwelled, was this trickle of water. I was in our Ed building on the third floor last week when I noticed from the roof a trickle of water coming down. And my first thought was not, God is here. <laughs> but this is what 
Isaac, Mark Weens, bless you, he fixed it right away. So there you go. What Ezekiel sees is, is this drip of water, this trickle of water, and it starts to flow east. And the, the orientation of this flow matters. Three times in the first three verses, Ezekiel recounts that the water flows east. The temple faces east. The water goes down eastward. And they're like, why does that matter so much? Well, in the first chapters of the Bible, when humanity has been created by God in the Garden of Eden, Eden means well-watered garden because there was a river that flowed through this garden. And because of humanity's failure to trust God for life, to, to trust God's definitions of good and evil, to live in constant companionship with God, humanity was expelled from this well-watered garden and lived east of Eden. To borrow a phrase from John Steinbeck, east of Eden was also where Babylon was. And so this flow of water moves in this eastward direction. And so the, the, the flow goes towards the, the places and spaces that are deserted. The desert space is this symbolic antithesis to the God space, the Eden space, well-watered gar garden where God dwells. Well, in this time and, and, and space without the sort of irrigation technology that we all rely upon every single day, you needed to be where water was near. And surrounding the promised land, this land flowing of milk and honey that God said, I will give this land to you, it was all a desert with these spots and patches of water. But this water is moving, flowing from the temple eastward toward where the people of God are in exile in the desert. And then Ezekiel follows this, this man with the measuring tape. And this this process of demarcation. Every 1,500 yards, the water deepens. So what starts as a trickle moves to sort of a kiddie pool depth, ankle deep. And then another 1,500 yards and it's knee deep, and then another 15 and it's waist deep, and then another 1,500 and it's, this river is so big and wide and deep and strong and fast that nobody can cross it. So this cascading river flows from the temple east and it gets deeper and wider, and stronger, and faster, and it flows into the desert, and into the Dead Sea itself. And the Dead Sea is not named hyperbolically. It's literally true. Nothing can live in the Dead Sea because of the amount of salt that exists in the water. It's a, it's a trendy vacation space in, in, in modern times because 
people can float on the water. You know, there's all sorts of pictures on Instagram of people reading a newspaper while floating on the water itself, or, you know, they use the, the, the mud from the Dead Sea to exfoliate their skin. But nothing can live there. You can't sustain life from the Dead Sea. There are no fish that swim. You can't drink the water. It's dead. And the water flows from the temple down, cascades down into the desert, into this basin, into this water that is stagnant and that cannot sustain life. And it begins the process of purification. And the man says to Ezekiel, wherever this water flows, life will emerge. It's this image, this process of new creation, of life coming out of death, of flourishing coming at the hands of God, renewing and redeeming the dead places and the dead spaces, not only in our lives, but in the world. And so Ezekiel is led back upstream, and he sees this process of reforestation, that all along both banks of this river are trees. And this is a nod to Psalm 1. And in Psalm 1, it, it says, the blessed one, the one who is living the good life, doesn't, doesn't walk with the mockers, doesn't stand with the scoffers, doesn't sit with the cynical, but meditates on God's law day and night. And they will be like a tree planted by streams of living water, bearing fruit in their season, and their leaves will be for healing. And that's exactly the image that Ezekiel provides here. All along this river is a great number of trees bearing fruit every single month, which would have been miraculous at the time because you couldn't just go to Costco and get fruit out of season. All of these fruit trees are bearing fruit, and then their leaves provide a sort of medication for the healing of wounds, the salve for our sores, the points and pieces of our lives that are broken and in need of refreshment and restoration. Imagine having a, a significant sunburn and just that first swipe of aloe on your skin. Ugh, relief. And so this vision that Ezekiel has leads to God's people for a long time holding tightly to this expectation that this wasn't just some vision that a random person had, but this was a promise communicated by Ezekiel for the people of God, that this time would come, that God would return to dwell among the people and God's presence in and through the people would be like this river of life that flows into the valley of death, and dead things would come back to life, and there would be flourishing and vitality, and all of the world would begin to look like and resemble Eden itself because everyone would live in constant companionship with God, and righteousness would flow like a stream, and justice would fall down from the skies like rain and everything would be renewed and revived and they longed and prayed and waited for this day for God to come again and do this thing. And then, 
comes the incarnation. Jesus of Nazareth shows up. And in John's biography of his life, John sees that Jesus has dwelled and meditated and and metabolized this very promise and, and indeed is the very fulfillment of this promise of living water. And then in John 7, Jesus is at this religious high festival. And on the last and greatest day of the festival, the priest would come and get a gigantic bowl of water from this uh, this, this pool that had a fresh stream flowing into it. It was, it was living water. And so he would pull out this bowl and then he would come to the temple steps and they would sing these songs of praise to God. And then the priest symbolically enacting this promise would dump the water down the temple steps and would flow from the temple to the people. And it would be like, yes, Lord, please fulfill your promise. And this moment happens and people are celebrating. It's like, you know, that moment on, on a Christmas Eve service where the candles have just been lit and the light comes down and Jesus grabs the mic and says this in John chapter 7. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by this he meant the Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. And this is precisely the sort of thing that got Jesus killed. Because he said all of these promises throughout the scriptures, and this one in particular, this promise of living water, I am its fulfillment. You want that. It's not coming through religion. It's not coming through rebellion. It's coming in proper relationship to me. So come and drink. I am that living water that you thirst for. What you want, I have on offer freely to give. You come to me and you will experience revivification. And Jesus, this invites us into a relationship with him that begins in the waters of baptism, that we are plunged down into this river of life that pulls out death from us and we emerge, re-emerge back into renewed, revivified life in the Spirit. And the Spirit of Jesus himself lives and moves and acts in and through us. And so we have this constant, ever-present companion in the Holy Spirit who revives and renews and flows fresh living water into us whenever we turn and pay attention and live in obedience and listen to the promptings. The Spirit begins to move and act so that we all in our own everyday lives can begin to live precisely like Jesus. And when we do this, when the, the living water flows through us into the world, it's this promise of restoration. And the early church captured this and began to live it out that one day in the revelation that John has, the very last book of the Bible, it ends with this image of living water flowing from Jesus out into the city of the new Jerusalem and these trees being planted by this, this river and all of creation, all of the brokenness, all of the decay, all of the dysfunction would be purified. Everything would be renewed and revivified and all of God's creation would breathe finally and be fully alive, fully 
hydrated by God's presence and power. And so what does this all mean for you and for me? Well, it means, among many other things, it means this for you this morning, that the Holy Spirit revives our lives. That the promise of Jesus is a promise of renewal, is a promise of refreshment, is a promise of is a promise of promise, of things will be restored, that every tear that you've ever shed, Jesus grabs those and contains them and knows them as intimately as you know them yourself, and that Jesus will bring to you hope and life and renewal and the very things that you most desperately long for, the things that you watch the news and you say, oh my gosh, God, where are you? How much longer? Jesus is saying, in and through you, living water will flow. This refreshment is coming to you, is present to you, is available through you in my name. And so how do we access it? How do we drink from the river of life in the valley of death? Well, it's going to look as unique and individual as there are as many unique and individual stories in this room and in our world. But here's a little bit of what it has looked like for me recently. The interesting thing about this story in connection to my story is that the Dead Sea, you may know this, is the lowest place geographically on planet Earth. It exists 420 meters, you can do the math, uh, below sea level. And as I was praying with this, it, it occurred to me that, that the last six months of my life have, have been this sort of dead sea. I have been at the lowest place in my life that I quite possibly have ever been in. It was exactly six months ago today that one of my dearest friends, um, a former student, a, um, a person who was who became like a little sister to me, was an incredible follower of Jesus, and she was tragically killed in a car accident by a drunk driver six months ago today. And the impact and the effect of what that's done in me has been an incredible challenge, especially as, as so much of this has, has coincided and coexisted with some of, of, of the most profound and complex struggles that I have ever dealt with pastorally, leading through very difficult, intense, and painful moments. I find myself in this low place. And I recognize that the, the challenge, the challenge is to try and do everything that we can to get out of this low point, to try and climb our way out. But the promise of this passage is that the river flows to you there. It's in our lowest moments when we identify with and when we name the fact that we have a profound need for renewal. That is the place where the Spirit comes to bring 
refreshment. And what it meant for me is that I needed to move like, uh, like following this person with the measuring tape from ankle deep to knee deep to waist deep to being completely taken under, surrendered to the Spirit of God. To be taken down underneath the water itself into the depths of my own brokenness, my own shame, my own faults and failures, and to allow God to strip and purify and clean and rehydrate me from the depths of my own being so that I might be able to be the type of person who can point to the source of the water from which I drink. This is the invitation. This is what it can look like for you and for me. And what I've realized is that this work is done almost entirely behind the scenes, in the depths and in the shadows of our lives. As the Australian pastor Mark Sayers puts it, personal renewals begin in the hidden places, often driven by solitary prayer, solitary prayer and self-examination. Communion with God, fasting and the habits of secrecy, the uprooting of sinful patterns and confessions with trusted leaders and pastors. This is where renewal, revival, refreshment, rehydration begins. It's in the places of the depths that we often don't want to go. And we have to commit ourselves to a process like this. This doesn't happen haphazardly or accidentally. And what I came to, to find is that in the stress and the anxiety and the challenges and the depression and the, the pain of the last six months, I found myself profoundly tempted to be uprooted and to move myself away from all sorts of things, but primarily from God, to step back from habits and patterns and practices of prayer that Sayers talked about here to step away from that because I'm so tired, I'm so hurt, I'm so broken. I, let me take care of myself for a little while. And the further and further away I moved myself away from that, the thirstier and the thirstier and the thirstier I got. And it, w once I recommitted myself to these processes, I found myself immediately refreshed. And so I'm coming to see and coming to learn, and, and I think the invitation for us today is that refreshment flows to commitment. And th there are personal and corporate dimensions to this. And I think as we begin a new season, a new chapter of our lives individually and corporately, I think this is the invitation from the Spirit of Jesus to each one of us. As you are getting your back-to-school supplies together, what would it look like for you to commit yourself to regular processes and practices and patterns of prayer like this in, over a period of time to see what might happen? And there are a couple different ways you could do this. Let's jump to the last slide, CJ. So how do, a couple of things before we bless the kids who are going back to school. Number one is name your dead sea. 
Name your Dead Sea. Life can't happen there. So just name it. Don't try and submerge yourself into it. Don't try and drink from it. Don't try and work your way around it or crawl yourself out of it. Just name it. Here's where I am. And trust that the water will flow to you. Second is go deeper. Name where you are. Are you, are you drinking from the trickle? Are you splashing around in the ankle-deep water? And could God possibly be inviting you into the depths? And then finally, branch out. Use what God has given to you in your experiences, in your passions, in your gifts, in your wisdom, in your time to bring fruit and healing to others. These are the invitations by which God promises to provide revival through the Holy Spirit into our lives and through our lives to the world. Because if we can commit to this, friends, the promise is not only not only, not only will the river of life flow to you, but it will flow through you and it will flow through us out into the city and into the world that needs a fresh, cool drink of water in a dry and arid time. Amen.